0: When the Billy Graham crusade came to Montgomery, Alabama in 1965, Dr. Graham insisted that the choir be integrated with both blacks and whites. Well, a local newspaper responded with an extremely bigoted editorial. It complained that Graham was trying to set the church back a hundred years. Billy Graham replied, If that's the case, I've failed in my mission. I intend to set it back 2,000 years you know, the earliest church wasn't a perfect church, but they possessed the key ingredients that all churches need. In Acts chapter 4, verse 32, we're told God blessed this church with great grace and with great power. And tonight we're going to read about both. Last time we saw how the Father poured out His long-awaited promise at Pentecost There was that sound of the rushing wind. Then there were the flickers of fire over the heads of the disciples. The two phenomena accompanied the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was poured out on the 120 disciples there waiting in the upper room. Peter then stood and he provided the crowd a biblical explanation of what had happened. He then followed his sermon with an invitation the people came forward and they said they were cut to the hearts. His listeners begged Peter, what must we do? And Peter answered by saying, repent. And that's where we pick it up tonight in chapter 2, verse 40. And with many other words, Peter testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Wow, what a great start to a church. The first day, 3,000 souls were saved. But notice what they were saved from. We usually think that we're saved from sin and its effects, and that's true. But Peter viewed salvation much broader. Peter exhorted his listeners, be saved from this perverse generation. You see, there is a spirit within our culture today from which we too need to be saved. Since all humans are born in sin, every new generation is tainted with this perversity or this twisted nature. It's displayed in different ways from generation to generation, but rebellion, independence from God underlies our culture. And Peter saw salvation in Christ as a way of escaping the surrounding twistedness When we're saved, we're transferred from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. We're saved to live our lives with a new set of values. We're saved from this perverse or twisted generation. Verse 42 outlines the agenda of the early church. Here's what accompanied the early Christians. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Notice church life didn't revolve around committee meetings and political rallies and social clubs. Notice Luke doesn't mention anything about softball leagues or Zumba classes or Weight Watchers, although I'm sure all those activities have their place. No, what strikes me about life in the early church was two things. It was simple and it was spiritual. The life of the early church swirled around four basic activities. First, they delved into the scriptures. They studied with the apostles. They were taught and they studied the scriptures. Second, they fellowshiped and they spent quality time with each other. Their emphasis was on knowing and being known, serving and being served, loving and being loved. And then third, they broke bread together or they took communion. In other words, they worshiped God together. And then fourthly, they prayed. The church that prays together stays together. That's it. The church calendar wasn't full of superfluous, temporary kinds of superficial stuff. No, no. They were all about big ideas, word and worship, fellowship and prayer. Here's an outline of their agenda. They learned of God. They loved God. They shared God. And they spoke with God, and they did it all together. Notice this early church was all about God. And notice the results of sticking to this kind of simple and spiritual agenda. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Hey, this church and its members were respected. They were seen as genuine and true, and real. Oh, that the church today would regain its respect. I think too many people today take the church for granted. We're not as respected as we should be because we've trivialized ourselves by majoring on the minors and and minoring on the majors. When the church gets back to what it needs to be doing, the Word of God and fellowship and worship and prayer We'll regain the respect and the fear of the people around us. And then God validated their faith, notice, by working wonders and signs. This, too, added to their respect. When a church is sincere, God sanctions it with the miraculous and the supernatural. And then there was also great love in this church, great power and great grace. Notice verse 44. Now all who believed were together, and they had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. Spiritually speaking, this demonstrates the caring and the generosity that existed in this early church. You know, it's easy to talk about being a spiritual family, but the church in Acts put their money where their mouth was. They pooled their resources together to meet each other's needs. Hey, if Jesus has given such to us, how can we not give to one another? That was their rationale. You know, some observers have called the early church the first expression of communism. They had all things together, but that's not, that's not a good, good description. This isn't communism. This is communism. Communism is forced sharing. There was nothing forced about this. Believers were giving freely and generously and voluntarily, and they were combining their resources with each other. It was commonism. Actually, there may have been a better way to meet each other's needs. Later, when famine strikes Judea, the Gentile churches are going to be asked to collect an offering for the church at Jerusalem. It could be that their abandonment here of personal property and ownership crippled their ability to weather that later storm. God never commands us to pool our resources, only to show love and to be generous. This commonism might not have ended up being the best strategy. But verse 46 tells us, So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. You know, I've heard it put, A healthy church will be growing larger and smaller at the same time. Now, how does that work? Well, it's because here is a good example. They were growing larger and smaller at the same time. They were meeting together in the temple with that big meeting on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. But then they were also meeting from house to house, breaking bread and sharing of their love for one another. You know, there's an excitement that comes when we gather together on Sunday mornings with other believers. We need that. We need what occurred in the temple. But we also need to cultivate the more intimate fellowship that occurs when when we meet in small groups from house to house. This is the combination that, that produces optimal spiritual growth. And this is what we're trying to capture at Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain, by the way. On Sunday mornings, our celebration is a large group and then our weekly through the Bible studies, which we're videotaping tonight, they're the smaller groups. And it's that combination of the large and the small that causes us to grow. And notice the results here. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The Lord added. There was no striving on the church's part, no programs, no pushes. It was just God's supernatural work. You know, I believe that when any church becomes a healthy church, God will add to that church. I believe that. Chapter 3. Now, Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, or about 9 a.m. Now, remember, Peter and John were Jews, and as were all the first Christians, and they were living together under Jewish custom. One of the Jewish rituals was to pray for an hour in the temple three times a day, at nine in the morning, at noon, and at three in the afternoon. Devout Jews living in Jerusalem would suspend their normal activities to come to the temple for these times of prayer. And a certain lame man from his mother's womb, notice he'd been crippled from birth, was carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms from those who entered the temple. Now, sadly, there weren't many vocational training programs for handicapped people in first century Jerusalem. All that a paralytic could do was to beg. And so every morning, this man's friends, they would put him on a stretcher, they would cart him down to the temple, they'd lay him down by the gate, and they would let him beg the day away. And notice they placed him strategically By the gate, beautiful. This was the entrance into the inner court of the temple. This was the spot that got the most traffic, by the way. In fact, just inside the gate, beautiful, there were 13 trumpet shaped offering boxes. The beggar was hoping to catch the devout Jews while they had a few coins in their hand. Verse 3 speaks of the lame man who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, Look at us. And so he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Now understand, this man was a professional beggar. He was as callous toward the people walking by as the people were toward him. I suppose he never really looked anybody in the eyes. His head hung low. He looked only for expensive sandals so that he could jiggle his cup in their direction and hope to get a few coins. And the worshipers were as oblivious to him as he was to them. Oh, they may have dropped a coin or two in his cup, but they never locked eyes with him either. What was it that caused Peter to suddenly fix his eyes on this beggar? You know, perhaps a dozen beggars worked this same spot there in the temple. Why did Peter lock on to him? Well, I'm sure it was a mixture of love, of the Holy Spirit's leading, of his own openness, maybe the gift of faith. Suddenly, though, Peter felt a tug in his heart in this crippled man's direction. And then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have. But what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. Now earlier Peter and John with the rest of the church had sold all their possessions and pulled them together with other believers. He no longer had any silver and gold of his own. Reminds me of the day the Pope was counting his money in the church coffers. Thomas Aquinas, the great saint, entered the room. The Pope pointed to his cachet of gold and jewels and he said, Thomas, the church can no longer say silver and gold have I none. Aquinas responded, yes, and neither can we say in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. It's a sad indictment against the church when we substitute prosperity for power. When we put more trust in our money than in miracles. Hey, no amount of money can buy what we need most. The power of the Holy Spirit. And Peter took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. In the original Greek, the wording used by Dr. Luke implies that the man's inability to walk was due to some severely dislocated ankles. Notice that's where the healing occurs, in his feet and ankle bones. You know, whenever I read this passage, man, I marvel at Peter's incredible faith. I mean, Peter was a man like you and I. Imagine the thoughts that raced through his mind just before he grabbed this man's hand. Oh, what if he doesn't stand up? What if I lift him up and then his legs buckle and he falls back down? If this doesn't work, I'll be accused of humiliating a handicapped guy. Can you imagine the thought? A thousand what ifs bombarded his brain. And yet Peter felt the leading of the Holy Spirit so strongly that he refused to second guess himself. He risked it all to obey the Lord. Spiritually speaking, Peter is walking on water again. This time, though, he refuses to take his eyes off Jesus. You know, we all want to walk on water, don't we? We all want to do a little supernaturalist surfing. We all want to participate in God's miracles, but it always takes faith. It always does. We've got to be willing to muster courage and set aside fear and step out in faith whenever the Spirit gives us that nudge. And so Peter grabs his hand. He lifts him up, and we're told he, leaping up, stu- didn't just rise up. He leapt up. He was leaping up, stood, and he walked, and he entered the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God. Boy, notice the completeness of the miracle. Not only were the man's ankles dislocated, his leg muscles had atrophied from decades of immobilization. Normally it would have taken weeks and tons of physical therapy in order for this man to regain his balance and the use of his legs again. And yet just seconds after this miracle takes place, this man is running and walking and leaping and praising God all throughout the temple. Apparently, Jesus is not just a great physician. He's also quite a physical therapist. And all the people, they saw him walking and praising God. And then they knew that it was he who sat begging alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John. And I love this. Notice this fellow has been plagued by lame legs, but he sure wasn't a lame brain, that's for sure. Because rather than just run home to show off his new wheels, notice, he holds on to Peter and John. Obviously, there's more that he can learn from these two men. You know, I think it's important that whenever God works a miracle in our lives, that we hold on to it for a while, that we think it through. Often when God works, we revel in the results without really realizing the lesson that comes attached. And there is always a lesson that comes attached with God's miracles. All his miracles have a message. This man's legs are healed, but more importantly, his heart is open. And now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. This was the covered colonnade just east of the gate beautiful. And so when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? How refreshing it is now to see Peter so quickly disavow any personal responsibility for this miracle. Boy, Peter's failure in the garden had humbled him. He no longer likes to linger in the limelight. You know, he and the lame man aren't going to appear on Christian television together to talk about it. He doesn't have a photo of them on the ministry magazine. In fact, Peter's not even going to start his own healing ministry. He just says, hey, wait a minute, this wasn't me. This was the Lord Jesus who did this miracle. Instead, he proclaims, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his son, servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate, When he was determined to let him go, but you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the prince of life whom God raised from the dead of which we are witnesses. What an irony there. The Jews killed the prince of life. How ironic. But God raised him up. And Peter says he's still now knocking at your heart's door. I love what Walter Wink once said. He said, killing Jesus was like trying to destroy a dandelion by blowing on its head. Jesus ascended to the Father, but he has returned in the person of the Holy Spirit, no longer confined by human limitations. Now he reveals himself in countless hearts in every corner of the planet. He's spreading. This Jesus movement continues to spread. Peter here is confronting the Jews. He's telling them, you can't duck Jesus. He won't go away. Kill him. And God will raise him from the dead. He won't go away. You can't even kill him to get him to back off of you. He's on you like white on rice. His love keeps coming, hoping that you'll repent and let him run your life. Verse 16, in his name. In fact, through faith in his name. What name, that powerful name of Jesus, has made this man strong whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Notice Peter doesn't even take credit for the faith that he's just exercised. He says that even the faith he exhibited came from Jesus. You know, Peter's faith apparently was that special gift of faith that's spoken of in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. There Paul is listing the various spiritual gifts when he writes, and to another wonder-working faith. Did you know there is a gift of faith? There's a special allocation of faith. It's not our faith, but God gives us the faith that we need to trust him for the miracle. When you need a miracle in your life, don't just pray for the miracle. Also pray for the faith to receive it. You can do that. There is such a thing as a supernatural gift of faith. In fact, Jesus told us in Matthew 17, verse 20, he says, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Notice a mustard seed is first planted in the soil, then it sprouts, it roots and then it sprouts. Likewise, the gift of faith is a planted faith. It doesn't come from within you. It gets planted from outside of you. God plants it in your heart. The Holy Spirit sows it in the soil of your heart so that it can move mountains. This is the faith that's dead to doubts and dumb to discouragements and blind to impossibilities. To do great things for God, we need to pray not only for His miracles, but we need to pray for the faith to receive them, the gift of faith. And yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance. As did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Notice this invitation doesn't include baptism. If baptism was essential for salvation, he would have mentioned it here. No, Peter's emphasis is repent. And repentance is more than remorse or regret. A lot of people are sorry they sinned. They're sorry they got caught. They're sorry for the consequences that they're now suffering. But true repentance is the willingness to change, not the power to change. We lack the power, that's why we need Jesus to give us the power, but repentance is the willingness to do whatever it takes for God to change us. That was His invitation. Repent. And I love God's response to our repentance. Notice it's threefold in Peter's words here. He, he converts. Once we repent, once we're willing to change, then God comes in, He turns us around. He gives us new drives, He gives us new desires. He converts us. And then he blots out our sin. I love this. The Holy Spirit's like bounty paper towels. He's the quicker picker-upper. He can get up the deepest stain. The Holy Spirit's multiplied. He just can suck up the deepest, darkest stains. He blots out our sin. And then He sends times of refreshing. Oh, my. You know, the Holy Spirit's like a warm day after a cold winter. You can open up the windows and you can let in the fresh air. Everything seems rejuvenated. There's a smile back on your face. There's a bounce back to your step. New possibilities are in the air. This all comes with the filling of the Holy Spirit. And so if they repent, he'll convert them. He'll blot out their sin. He'll send times of refreshing. Verse 20, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before whom heaven must receive until the time of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Now, when I give an invitation to the gospel, I track with Peter up to verse 20. Because I offer people the same thing Peter offered his listeners. I'll tell people, repent. and What will happen? You'll be converted. Your sins will be blotted out. You can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Refreshment will come. But I have never said, repent, and Jesus will return, and he'll restore all that sin has destroyed. That's a pretty bold invitation. And yet, on this day, that is exactly what Peter promised the Jews. He promised them the end times. He promised them the return of Jesus and the restoration of all things. This term, times of refreshing, It was also an idiom for the kingdom age. A time yet future when Jesus will come back to this earth and reign from Jerusalem for a thousand years. He'll set all things right. He'll restore all that sin has damaged. Peter is saying to Israel, get saved today and all God's promises will be fulfilled. Jesus will return and he'll usher in a new age on the earth. Wow, what a promise. Now, In the days of their earlier exile to Babylon, during that period of time, God promised the Jews a series of promises that became known as the New Covenant. Both Jeremiah and Ezekiel promised Israel what I call the three R's. You might want to write these down. The first part of the New Covenant was that God would return the Jews to their homeland. And of course, that happened in the final days of the Old Testament. Second, he would regenerate their evil hearts. They would be born again. They would receive new life, spiritual life. Third, he would restore to them the kingdom of God. Three promises to the new covenant. Regathering or return to, to their homeland, regeneration of their hearts, and a restoration of the kingdom of God. At this point in their history, of course, they were back in the land. Through the cross of Jesus, a changed heart was now possible. Apparently, if they had repented that day, if they had believed, what could have happened next? Well, what was the next part of the new covenant? It was the return of Jesus and the restoration of the kingdom. I believe if the Jews had received Jesus that day, the end time scenarios would have been activated. You know, it's a provocative thought If Israel had received the gospel, the church could have been raptured at the end of Acts chapter 3. The world then would have been plunged into great tribulation and according to Daniel, seven years later, Jesus would have returned. Historians tell us that in the year 40 AD, the Roman emperor Gaius, or Caligula as he was known, dispatched a legion of soldiers to Palestine along with a statue of his likeness orders were given to erect a statue in the holy of holies within the temple and then require the jews to worship the emperor you know a key event in daniel's vision of the end times is the antichrist's desecration of the temple he will set up his image and force the world to worship him could it be that in 40 AD god already had the characters in motion the possibilities prophecies Prophecy of Daniel actually being fulfilled? It could have happened in 40 AD had the Jews accepted Peter's offer of salvation. If they had, God was prepared to set in motion the end times prophecies. As it turns out, the Jewish leaders rejected the gospel. Caligula was assassinated before his statue arrived in Caesarea and the Roman soldiers were ordered back to Rome. When Israel rejected Peter's invitation... God put the end time prophecies on pause. And he's been reaching out to the Gentiles ever since. That's where we are today on God's timetable. This also explains why Peter's quotation from Joel chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost spoke of the final judgment. In Peter's mind, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was a companion with the final judgment. This is why he spoke of wonders in heaven, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood. It all could have happened had the Jewish nation truly believed in Jesus. For the moment, God is reaching out to the Gentiles. But one day, the invitation of Peter will be repeated to the Jewish nation. This time, they'll look on him whom they've pierced, according to Zechariah. They'll put their trust in Jesus as their Messiah. And according to Paul, all Israel will be saved. Verse 22, For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And of course, this prophet, like Moses, was Jesus. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Here he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 18. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You hear what he's saying? He's saying all God's promises were targeted toward this generation. He was speaking to that crowd on the day of Pentecost. You guys, all these promises are aimed and targeted towards you. Will you receive the gospel today? What a moment that was. He says, To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Jesus and the New Testament authors will go on to tell us that the gospel was to the Jew first. But then because the Jews rejected it, it has now come to the Gentiles, to you and me. To the Jew first, then to the Gentiles. In chapter 4, we see the tragic response by the Jewish hierarchy to Peter's sermon. Now, as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees, all of the bigwigs, they came upon them being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, now remember, the Sadducees were the anti-supernaturalists. They rejected the notion of miracles or the afterlife. That's why they were sad, you see. And thus they opposed the resurrection. You remember, while on earth, Jesus, his primary opposition came from what sect? The Pharisees. They didn't like his application of the law. They, they didn't like his disregard for their traditions. But the church's chief opposition will come from the Sadducees. Why? Because they believed and trumpeted and preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, the Sadducees come along with the Jewish hierarchy, verse 3, and they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Notice the rate of growth in this early church. And this was all conversion growth, by the way. Nobody was transferring from one church to the other since there were no other churches. (laughs) In just a few days, the church in Jerusalem has swelled from 120 in the upper room to 3,000 on the day of Pentecost to now 5,000 men. Who knows how many women and children. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. Now this family of Annas, this was an extremely powerful Jewish family. Remember after Jesus was arrested, he was tried twice before two high priests, before Annas and then again before Caiaphas. Uh, Annas was sort of the, the godfather of the priesthood. Caiaphas was serving as the high priest at that particular time. Annas and his sons held the highest positions in Judaism. In fact, by the time the family was through, five of his sons actually served as high priest. Evidently, nepotism ruled the roost among the Jewish priesthood. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Now, Deuteronomy 13 warns that a false prophet with demonic powers may come and work miracles to draw people away from Jehovah, the true God. And such a person was to be stoned to death. Thus it was the Sanhedrin's duty to ask in whose name was a miracle performed. And that's what they're doing here. By what power or by what name have you done this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice it happens to him again. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He said to them, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God has raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. Wow, what boldness. This is what the filling of the Holy Spirit provides It provides us fearless courage. Recall the word Christ. Do you remember what it means? Christos, the Greek word Christos, it it means, it's from the Hebrew word uh, Mashiach, or anointed one. It means Messiah. He's talking about here, Jesus Messiah of Nazareth, whom you crucified. Notice the dig he throws in there. Whom you crucified, God has raised from the dead. By his name we've worked this miracle. In fact, he says, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. And here he quotes a familiar psalm, Psalm 118, verse 22. He's saying that the architects of Judaism, you've rejected the stone, but he's going to end up the chief foundation stone of the church. The Jews rejected Jesus, but Jesus has now become our cornerstone. He's the rock on which we're built. Nor is there salvation in any other For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Did you know that? There's no other name given among heaven, among men and under heaven by which we must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. Is that exclusive? Yes. Is that ambiguous? (laughs) No. (laughs) Pretty clear. Without hesitation, without intimidation. Peter makes it crystal clear that without Jesus Christ a person is lost and damned forever. It's only by the name of Jesus that we can be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. Now remember, Annas' family they had been trained in the elite yeshivas. They had sat under the most notable rabbis whereas these apostles these were blue collar guys they were joe the plumber types that's who the apostles were and yet they spoke from the scripture with such clarity and with such authority at first these religious dignitaries they were stunned how can this possibly be but then they come to the answer themselves and they realized that they had been with jesus and that is the key Fluency in Greek, mastering systematic theologies, education in comparative religion, stuff you get at seminary, it may have some value. But none of it is ever a substitute for spending time with Jesus. You've heard the letters PhD. You know what they stand for, don't you? Piled high and deep. Piled high and deep. And that's what a formal theological education is worth unless the person who gets it has also been with Jesus. Spending time in the halls of higher learning is not nearly as important as spending time at the feet of Jesus. What Peter and John possessed made what they lack totally obsolete. Verse 14, And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them... (laughs) What a picture that was. Peter, John, and a man who'd been born lame standing with them right next to them. How can you deny that? They could say nothing against it, but when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves saying, what shall we do to these guys? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem. We can't deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. You know, the Jews thought that the movement would die out if they killed its leader. But now there's new sprouts, new shoots popping up. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 12? He said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Now the much grain of the gospel is occurring. The harvest has begun. Jesus died, but he ascended to heaven, and now he sent his spirit, and now the spirit is popping up everywhere preaching the gospel. There's no way they can stop it. It's spreading. They can't stop it. The harvest has begun, and the Jews know they're incapable of putting a lid on it. And so they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus, probably shook their finger at him, got real mean, tried their best to intimidate Peter and John into silence. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Peter says, man, we've got no choice. We have been commanded by God to add speech to our faith. We must speak out. You know, let me ask you a question tonight. What thoughts cross your mind when someone tries to silence your witness? Oh, this could cost me my job. Oh, I need to be careful here about what I say. This could hurt my popularity. Oh, no, I better not push the issue here. I got too much at stake. Oh, maybe I'll just avoid this conflict. Hey, Peter would say, none of that matters. It's not our choice anyway whether we speak out or not. You and I and all Christians are under divine mandate to speak what we know about Jesus. How can we not speak the things we've seen and heard? He says, you you, you judge. What, What should we do, obey man or obey God? You remember that tomorrow when you're faced with a decision. And so when they had further threatened them, They let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. This man had been lame for four decades. Albert Camus once said, What the world expects of Christians is that Christians should speak out Loud and clear in such a way that never a doubt, never the slightest doubt could arise in the heart of the simplest man. Do you realize the world around us expects us to speak out? Hey, if we believe that a man was crucified, suffered and died, and rose again three days later, if we really believe that, would anyone fault us for speaking that out? Why, the world expects us to speak out. What's wrong with us when we don't? Verse 23, and being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. They probably went back to the upper room. That's where they had been meeting, where the Holy Spirit had been first poured out, where Jesus and his disciples had taken the Last Supper. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, now they've been released from prison. They've gone back. They've gathered together with the other believers. Probably the 120 again. And and notice the action that they take in response to the threats that they've received. Notice they don't protest. They don't decide on a boycott. They don't call up a lawyer and file a lawsuit. Notice what they do. They pray. That's their response. They pray. It's been said when your knees knock, kneel on them. And that's what they did. And here's their prayer. Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Notice first, they get their eyes on God. Notice their starting point here. It isn't their fear. It's not their enemy. They don't talk about their fear and their emotions. They don't talk about their enemy and what they've just been through. No, they get their eyes on their God. That's their starting point. They say, God made all things. God knows all things. Our God can do all things. This is our God. He's a sovereign God. This is where they start in their prayer. I, I like what C.S. Lewis once said about prayer. He said, the first prayer of all prayers is, may it be the real God to whom I pray, and may it be the real me who prays. I like that. They remind themselves that their God is sovereign, sovereign over every situation. And then they turn to the word in their prayer. They say, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, and now they quote Psalm 2. Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. And they acknowledge that God foresaw how the rulers of the world would gang up against Jesus. In other words, God wasn't caught off guard. God wasn't surprised by this. God foresaw this. For truly against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Herod and Pilate and the priest, they thought that they were in charge. They acknowledge now, though, that in reality, these were all just puppets on a string. They were all just fulfilling God's purposes. And, you know, nothing else has changed, That they realize. God is still the boss. And now, 2,000 years later, nothing has changed again. God is still the boss. He's still in charge. He's still in control. Nothing surprises him. The challenges you face, the problems you've been through, the threats you've received, doesn't surprise God? God foresaw these things. He foresaw how people would gang up against you. None of this surprises him. And so they pray verse 29. "Now look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And yet this is not how we usually pray. Oh, when we face persecution and threats, what do we do? We ask God to take it away. That's how we pray. But not here. Some of us ask God for wisdom to navigate these waters. Oh, Lord, we've been threatened. Help us to appease the authorities. Lord, show us how we can low-key our approach. Again, this is not how this church prays. Winston Churchill once said, an appeaser is one who feeds a crocodile hoping it will eat him last. Rather than appeasement, notice, this church prayed for boldness and for victory. They say, Lord, look on their threats, but then make us a greater threat. That's what they pray. Rather than lay low, these men want to up the ante. Rather than pray for protection or to pray for the avoidance of these problems or to pray for God to take them away, they pray for courage to face these things. They pray for a broader impact in light of these things. Phillips Brooks once said, do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men and women. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. Lord Jesus, we pray for power equal to our task tonight. We pray, Lord, for the power of the Holy Spirit upon our lives so that we can boldly proclaim, no matter how we're threatened, no matter how we're opposed, help us not back down and back off this good news you've given us to share. In verse 31, God sends his emphatic power. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was, was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. The foundation of the building in which they were inhabiting started to shake. The walls wobbled. The floor did the wave. And the disciples caught another spiritual wave. Once again, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and the result was a renewed desire to speak boldly the good news of Jesus Christ. Hey, remember, these are the same people who were filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Now, two chapters later, they're being filled with the Holy Spirit again. Can you be filled a second time with the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. Can you be filled multiple times with the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. R.A. Torrey once wrote, We need to be filled again and again with the Holy Spirit. I am sometimes asked, have you received the second blessing? Yes, yes and the third, and the fourth, and the fifth, and hundreds besides, and I am looking for a new blessing today. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a point-in-time experience, but it's not a one-time experience. There are multiple feelings. This is why we need to continually seek the power of the Holy Spirit.